Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Bad Philosopher Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Levesque, and today's episode is going to be a story. A story of how philosophy, specifically the philosophy of a person named Kong Fuzi, also known by his more popular name Confucius, has influenced social and political thinking in China for the past 2,000 years. Now, Confucius was a philosopher who lived more than 2,500 years ago. He lived in a period of Chinese history between the collapse of the ancient Zhao dynasty and the Warring States period, which eventually gave rise to the Qin dynasty, from which China gets its modern name. One of the concepts from Chinese philosophy that I love the most is this idea of Wu Wei. It translates roughly to effortless action, and it's a principle in both Confucianism and Taoism. Attaining this wu-wei state of mind means that someone is able to effortlessly conduct themselves in the correct manner in every situation that they encounter. And how can this kind of state be achieved? Well, according to Confucius, the wise person or the wise ruler should focus on cultivating a virtuous character for themselves, and this means learning how to behave correctly showing proper respect to others depending on one's respective position and role in society, carrying out one's duties with integrity, and following proper traditions and conduct in one's actions. You can also think of Wu Wei in these ancient Chinese philosophical traditions of Confucianism and Taoism as being the ideal form of government. And the idea here is that the ruler or the emperor of China should rule in a wu-wei sort of style, a hands-off approach to governance. As we'll see, the point here is that the virtuous character of the ruler should be enough to inspire everyone else in the kingdom to aspire to virtue for themselves as well. And thus, through this process of everyone in society aspiring to be a virtuous person inspired by their ruler to become virtuous people, we can achieve the ultimate goal of society. And that goal is to attain harmony in society, also known as social harmony. And for Chinese philosophers and thinkers like Confucius, this idea of achieving social harmony is the thing that all of us should be striving towards. Now, before we get to the philosophizing part of this podcast, I want to relate a story. And as I related on an earlier episode of the podcast, I've spent in total about a year living in China and teaching English there. And I'll just preface this by saying that I am a long way off from being some kind of a China expert, but this is what I observed, and this is a story from my time in China. Now, initially, I was teaching English at a school in a smaller town in China, and I had a roommate from the UK. On one of our first days being there, we decided to go out exploring the small town and sort of see what we could find, get to know the area. And we ended up deciding to check out this local bar that we saw as we were walking down the street, sort of near our apartment. Now, a lot of the bars in China are kind of weird. I mean, one thing I remember most is that a lot of them had very strange lighting. Most commonly, the bars are illuminated with just red lights, so it's a bit of a strange vibe. Anyways, we went into this bar, and nobody was there except for us, and this would have been in the evening on a weekend. As we learned, there's way more of a restaurant culture in China than a bar culture, but bars are typically where people will end up in the wee hours of the morning when restaurants are closed. So with us showing up at this bar at around 8 o'clock at night, we were very early. So we managed to order ourselves two of the local Qingdao beers, and when we sat down and talked about how strange the place was, some locals were walking by, and as they were walking by, I guess they saw us, and they 
popped their heads in and they looked at us. They were younger guys, probably in their early 20s or so, and they stopped their other friends who were also walking down the street and they came in and said hello to us pretty enthusiastically. I don't think they'd ever seen some foreign people in their small town before. So initially when they all came in, they sort of sat or stood around the bar and they were talking to the bartender a bit, I think kind of negotiating some deal for drinks. And at some point, one of them who could speak English started chatting to us and asked if we wanted some drinks. And this person ended up acting as a sort of a group translator. They were the one person in this group who could actually speak some English. They definitely weren't fluent, but it sort of ended up being their role in this group to go back and forth between us and the other people in the group who didn't speak any English, really. I think in total, there were like six of these guys all together. So the person that was sort of translating back and forth, he didn't speak the best English, but we ended up relying a bit on Google Translate a bit here to sort of communicate. Other than that, though, the conversation flowed fairly normally. I mean, there's a lot of things you can kind of communicate without having to know the language of the other person. And what was abnormal here was that they started ordering enormous amounts of beer, bottles and bottles of beer and just stacking them on the table. I think I counted that there were like three to four beer on the table for each person present or something, and they just kept ordering them, and the bartender just kept bringing them, mostly unopened, though. This was strange, and me and my roommate kind of looked at each other like, what is going on here? And I kind of started to get the feeling that there was some kind of scam going on here, like they were going to order all of this beer and then have us pay for it all or something. At some point, I got up and went to the bathroom, and I took most of the money I had out of my wallet, along with my debit card, folded it all up, and I put it in my shoe. I figured if they were going to try and do a shakedown on us and make us pay for the beer we weren't drinking, I could at least show them that I didn't have much money on me. So for the next little bit here, I got to walk around a little bit lopsided with a bunch of Chinese yuan bills stacked beneath one of my feet. I thought, well, should have at least spread them out evenly to give myself an even sort of lift, but I didn't think of that at the time. Shortly after making this little swaparoo, the guys asked us if we wanted to go out to dinner with them. And here, me and my roommate looked at each other again like, huh, it was like 8.30 at night or something, we'd already eaten, seemed a little bit weird. I think they reassured us and basically said that they wanted to show us a good time in their city because we're their guests. And so we thought, sure, might as well go check it out. Most of the beers that they had been stacking on the table were still unopened, so they ended up sending most of them back and basically not having to pay for them, which is good. And, I mean, they covered the bill for us, and they refused to let us pay for anything. Which in my mind was possibly just one step in some potential scam, you know, like have them pay for a few beers for us and then later on ask us to cover their meal. So we went with them anyway and jammed into two or three separate taxis to go to a restaurant. And it was a pretty damn nice restaurant too. So this was my first proper Chinese meal experience. We had our own private room on a multi-story restaurant. We had several people serving us. We were all seated at this huge round table in this private space. And the Chinese style of serving food at one of these restaurants is to bring out a ton of different dishes and basically everything gets passed around the table to share. And they also ordered a bunch more beer too. So it was kind of like we were their guests of honor or something. There was a ton of different food, which I absolutely loved because I love trying new foods out and there was a ton of different random stuff here. A lot of it, I didn't even know what it was. They were also doing quite a few toasts throughout this whole meal. One of the special weird drinks I tried was a, a beer with a raw egg cracked in it and then you just drink it down like a shot, basically. So you crack this raw egg into a glass of beer and then down it goes. 
I don't think my roommate did that because he was worried about salmonella or something, rightfully so, but but I went with it. Ganbei. Right, so the way you drink there is interesting. It's it's sort of a social convention to toast someone and basically tap your glasses like cheers and then you both drink together. And in Chinese, the word ganbei is equivalent to cheers. So basically everyone would fill their glass, generally a smaller glass, with beer and then say ganbei and all shoot it down like you'd do a shot of some kind of liquor. So your beer glass here was like multi-purpose. You'd drink and sip from it, but then you'd also fill it to the brim so you could do a shot of beer every so often. Another caveat here is that the beer in China, the regular beer, is like 2.5% alcohol, and that's what everyone drinks. So for me at the time, this was not sufficient to get drunk off of. I'd just get bloated from beer way before I was drunk. So at this meal, as the food wound down, my roommate leaned over and asked me, so, do you think we're gonna supposed to pay for part of this meal, or what? Then I quietly told him that I hid my cash in my shoe, and he said, darn, well, I don't have much cash on me. He pulled out his wallet to look, and the guy sitting next to us said, no, 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 and then the guy who could speak some English said, you don't pay. And that started the whole payment conversation. There was a, a lot of arguing, a lot of back and forth discussion going on, because our hosts were arguing about who should pay. And in situations like this, people don't split bills. One person pays for the whole group, and it's seen as an honor to pay. So in a way, like, everyone actually wants to pay for the bill. Not paying is sort of like losing face, or like losing social status in some ways. Not all the time, but it can be, depending on the situation. But it's all dependent on the situation, and there are levels to this game. I think it's normally the elder person in the group that's supposed to pay, or something like that. But even so, politeness requires that everyone else at the table sort of argues with them and goes through this process of stealing the bill and saying they're going to pay and then being talked out of it and someone else steals the bill and round and round it goes. So it's like you need to argue a little bit to show that you care and that you're not a freeloader, but not so much as to actually get in an argument. Because, I mean, if the other person, the elder person who's supposed to pay, doesn't pay, then they lose face. I remember having all of this sort of explained later on when we met this American guy who'd been living in China for like 10 years. He was just as shocked to see us in this city as all of these Chinese people were. He said he'd been working in that city for years and never seen other foreigners before he saw us. So eventually someone paid. And I felt like a total fool having hidden my money away being worried about it being a scam. What I had been experiencing here was true hospitality. So after that meal, I was incredibly full, and then we went out to go walk to a nearby park because we had one more thing that we needed to do that night. It happened to be the day of the Chinese Lantern Festival, unbeknownst to us. So we went with this group of guys and we bought some paper lanterns off of someone in the park, and then we set them up and we lit them, and they floated off into the sky along with dozens or hundreds of other lanterns being lit by other people in the park at the same time. When I got home that night, feeling like an idiot, I took the money out of my shoe. I'd never before experienced such a different culture in a context like that. I mean, the entire experience seemed unlikely and unreal in a way. It was later explained to me that in this situation, locals feel honored to be able to show hospitality for guests to their country, and they want to do it. And they also get the benefit of being able to show pictures to their friends of them hanging out with foreigners, so... They gain face by being hospitable to us, and then they also gain face with their friends later on that they can brag to and show pictures of us to. 
What this whole thing amounted to was an experience with normal, everyday sort of rituals that exist in China. Something that I, as an outsider, didn't understand, but which to the locals was a totally normal part of their everyday lives. I mean, the only oddity was this random encounter with us, a guy from Canada and a guy from the UK in a local bar in a small town in China. Apart from that, everything that went on was totally normal, just a totally normal part of the culture. In China, they kind of have this ritual around taking care of guests and making sure they're well taken care of. They have a ritual of determining who pays for a big meal. They have rituals around drinking. They have a ritual of participating in the Lantern Festival. And this was just a bunch of friends living their normal lives. When we asked how they all knew each other, they said that they all grew up together and went to school together, and that now some of them lived in other cities, but when the holidays happened, and this was around Chinese New Year, during the holidays they all go back to their hometown, the town we were in. And when they're all there, they all get together like they did that night with us. And there is some symbolism here. So the practice of this lantern festival fits in with this Chinese concept of li. And li means the following of traditions and ceremonies and proper rituals. Li also has a greater meaning that has to do with loyalty and respect towards other members of society. Confucius believed that being guided by this concept of li promoted good social behavior throughout the culture. That lantern festival itself symbolizes good fortune, so it's a win-win here. You practice the ritual because it's good to do so, and then you also get good fortune in return. And there are other examples of Li in the paying for the food, where the elder friend is supposed to be taking care of their younger friends. That's sort of their role in society in this context. And this also extends to the drinking, where people are toasting one another and they're all drinking together. In society, these are considered the right things to do. Li is the fabric that holds society together. Also, in taking care of guests like us, they're showing another related concept called ren. Ren means humaneness or goodwill towards others. Maybe the easiest way to think about this ren is to not put oneself at the center of the reasons for acting rightly. Instead, you just focus on doing good by others and Ultimately, it's through doing good by others that you cultivate the self, you cultivate your own virtue. So these two concepts of Li and Ren form the basis of harmony in Chinese culture. First, in Li, it's a sense of following traditions and proper rituals. And second, in Ren, it's a sense of humaneness and goodness towards others. And according to Confucius, it's by cultivating both of these concepts that one is able to attain a virtuous character. Confucius, in his text The Analects, sort of lays this out. He says, and I quote, If you are respectful but lack ritual, you will become exasperating. If you are careful but lack ritual, you will become timid. If you are courageous but lack ritual, you will become unruly. And if you are upright but lack ritual, you will become inflexible. So here, Confucius is saying that you need to be a good person and follow ritual in order to live up to this highest ideal of being a virtuous person and achieving this state of wu-wei, this effortless action. The cultivated person, this Confucian ideal, they express their ren, their humaneness or goodness, through the backdrop of li, through following traditions. In his book, The Quest for a Moral Compass by philosopher Kenan Malik, Responding to this passage, he says, and I quote, 
Confucius is suggesting also that accepting the social structure defined by Li is crucial to be able to properly express Ren. To be humane is not only to show empathy and love towards others, it is also to perform the duties and obligations required of one's role or station in life. So to me, this is exactly what happened on that night out with those Chinese locals. They, they expressed their li, their traditions, and brought us along as their guests, expressing ren. Malik goes on to provide some additional context. He says, and I quote, Chinese philosophers have tended to avoid the abstract, showing little interest in metaphysics or pure logic, pouring their energies instead into developing more down-to-earth, practical, political arguments. They were concerned chiefly with society and not with the universe, more preoccupied with defining how to live rather than in discovering how things are. Ethics, not religion, provided the spiritual basis of Chinese life. The teachings of Confucius helped cement that unique role of ethics. So, it does seem that Chinese philosophy is more concerned with society and ethics than abstract ideas like metaphysics and meaning. In many ways, though, one does derive meaning in life through their place in a well-functioning society. This is the goal, particularly from a traditional point of view. Now, Western ideologies of individualism and liberty and freedom have certainly infiltrated Chinese society, and maybe this is a bigger existential threat to the integrity of modern China than anything else. This is, though, a major oversimplification of the complexities of modern China and ancient China. But my goal here is not to orientalize Chinese philosophy in any way, shape, or form. When I read about Chinese philosophy and read about how the history of China has unfolded, it does seem like China had a more sophisticated political and ethical philosophy in place long before we did in the West. And here we do have a bit of this sort of artificial East-West split to deal with. The philosophy of China we usually slap on it the label of Eastern philosophy. And this label of Eastern philosophy is broad and it applies to a lot of different philosophies, including Confucianism, and then there's also Taoism and Buddhism. And in this way, when we're contrasting this with the Western world, anything that's labeled as Eastern is often Orientalized. It's treated as this different thing, this sort of less serious form of philosophy, treated more like mysticism than real philosophical investigation. But that's not what we see when we look deeper into philosophies in this Eastern philosophy category. A lot of these philosophies are a lot more complicated than we might give them credit for. And in my opinion, when we look at the philosophy coming out of China, specifically this ancient Chinese philosophy, this philosophy based around the thoughts of Confucius, I think China had a much more sophisticated ethical and political philosophy than what we saw coming out of ancient Greece at around the same time period. And in my opinion, it wasn't until much later on that Western philosophy sort of caught up to Chinese philosophy and Eastern philosophy in general, and then arguably ended up surpassing them. Now, there is a common opinion, and I don't know if this is valid or not, but it's that modern Western philosophy has far more depth and complexity than the equivalent modern Eastern philosophies do. I think if we were to compare the ancient versions of Eastern and Western philosophy, you could make a good argument that Chinese philosophy was more advanced earlier. I mean, in ancient Eastern philosophy, we do see the development of some ethical principles and ideas that aren't developed in Western philosophy until much, much later. 
but it does ultimately seem that in the modern day there's been a lack of innovation here, that philosophy in China and Asia in general has kind of stagnated. And I think the main problem here might be the implementation of China's dynastic system of top-down state control in everyday affairs. I mean, if you take a long view of China's history, it's sort of a pendulum swinging between two extremes. Either the region was split into separate states that were in constant conflict with one another, bringing about chaos and decline in society, or China was united under one centralized dynasty that implemented strict controls. Now, either situation is not ideal for a flourishing philosophy. Philosophy requires discourse and open discussion. I think we can draw some comparisons with European philosophy here and how it evolved separately. And again, I'm grossly oversimplifying things, but trying to get at the essence of the problem. So in the Western world, in Europe, at the height of Athens as a city-state, we saw the flourishing of the foundation of Western philosophy, and this happened between the 6th and 4th centuries BC or so. Now different things happened after this flourishing. Athens went into a state of decline, and philosophy declined with it. Alexander the Great came through and basically took over all of Greece before heading out to conquer lands as far as India. After him, the Romans established their massive empire. And during Roman times, there wasn't a ton of progress in philosophy. The tradition of Stoicism was developed a bit, but that was mainly focused on one's ability to be a good leader and develop oneself, filling in an important need during Roman times, an important political and social need. Stoicism was the philosophy of Roman leaders. But otherwise, Rome implemented quite a lot of top-down control, just like China's dynasties did. It wasn't a place for philosophical ideas to really flourish. Rome, too, eventually collapsed. And here, Christianity rose to prominence to fill the void, headed up by the Pope. The Christian Church and the Pope initiated this top-down control over the affairs of Europe in general. They had their tentacles sort of stretching everywhere. And they themselves were pretty much untouchable because Christianity dominated Europe. And this is where Europe falls into what we know today as the Dark Ages, a time where the people were splintered into numerous smaller city-states and smaller kingdoms, so it was a time of chaos and instability, as well as a backdrop of this authoritarian top-down control from the church, which held a monopoly over education and learning. All of the surviving classical learning and philosophy from the Greeks and Romans were preserved by the church but they were kept out of the hands of the public during this dark ages of Europe. So these two were not ideal conditions for any sort of philosophical undertaking to be done. Philosophy did still exist here in the form of Christian theology. All of the philosophers we know from the dark ages are scholars who are also priests or bishops or otherwise highly integrated into the Christian church. Because at this point, the church was the source of all education and learning. So this stage is where I sort of draw some parallels between Europe and China. In China, it seems philosophy was able to flourish in times of relative stability where there was neither chaos nor top-down control from the state. But for the past two millennia, China has been mainly dominated by centralized control or by chaos. And so too in Europe, philosophy flourished when Athens was a free and open democratic city-state and the most powerful entity in the region. But as soon as Athens fell, so too did the practice of philosophy for the most part. Of course, this doesn't mean that all philosophy ceased, but progress grinded to a halt. 
Just as during the Dark Ages most philosophy was centered on Christian theology, during the Chinese dynasties most Chinese philosophy was focused on how to run and administer a gigantic state, a gigantic empire. The biggest differentiator here is that in Europe we had the Renaissance. And this was a period of rediscovery of classical texts from the Greeks and Romans. And this rediscovery initiated a new era of open scholarship and the rise to prominence of art, literature, and philosophy. In large part, the Renaissance created the marketplace of ideas that led to the modern world that we know today. But China didn't have a Renaissance, at least not on the level of Europe. And why is that? Maybe it's because China never really had a Dark Ages where classical learnings were forgotten. In fact, different dynasties in China would base the principles of the state on different ancient forms of Chinese philosophy, most prominent of these being Confucianism. So China never forgot their old classical texts like the Europeans did. China always utilized them in their education system. Chinese officials were brought up learning the great classic texts of China, including prominent philosophical texts. Early on, different dynasties banned different texts, but Ultimately, Confucianism rose to prominence because it aligned most closely with traditional Chinese culture and values. Because China never forgot, these philosophical texts remained prominent and relevant to such an extent that they dominated society. All philosophy in China came in the form of new scholars commenting on these ancient texts, these ancient sources. In Europe, you had this tension between classical texts and religious texts. It was through a sort of discourse of these two realities that we saw the emergence of the Renaissance and the movement towards modern philosophy as we know it today. But in China, this tension didn't exist. A dynasty was always either rising or falling. But what emerged from the ashes was always the same Chinese culture with the same philosophical ideas and the same way of organizing society. With that, we might possibly say that Confucianism is the most influential philosophy in the world, at least it's been around and utilized in China longer than anything else. And its originator, Confucius, might be the most influential philosopher to have ever lived. Because the ideas from Confucius from 2,500 years ago resemble very closely the ideas of modern China to this day. And even now, as China opens up and this specter of communism has declined a bit, the teachings of Confucius are rising from the ashes again and imparting on China a sort of a return to tradition as a way forward. So, I think that Confucianism is still extremely relevant to modern China as it exists today. Confucius' teachings emphasize understanding one's place in society, showing respect for superiors and elders and other important relationships in society, and maintaining proper conduct based on one's duties and responsibilities. So to get started with Confucianism, the key text here is called The Analects of Confucius. And this book was compiled into its final form over 2,000 years ago based on the sayings and teachings of Confucius, who lived 2,500 years ago. And this text might to this day be the most commonly read book in all of China. The problem we have in the West is that a lot of editions and translations are subpar and lack context. According to the philosopher and scholar Edward Slingerland, the Analects were likely originally intended to be read aloud in a group, where teachers and students would then discuss their meaning and their nuance. So this text was supposed to be read and learned in the form of a sort of back-and-forth dialogue between the text and the readers, 
not really a text you sit down and read and expect to understand on your own. And that's not easily possible because the bare text itself is pretty cryptic. The lessons aren't always obvious. They require thought and reflection and context or assistance from others to interpret. Now, what happened with the Analects when it was compiled into a book was a tradition of later scholars commenting on each passage of the text, sort of like adding their own footnotes or thoughts on what the meaning of the text was. And in fact, most philosophy in China takes this form. Later, thinkers commenting on passages from Confucius and other ancient Chinese thinkers. And in this way, this building of the text with footnotes and comments sort of artificially recreated this in-person dialogue. But today, instead of having this in-person dialogue and being guided by a teacher in interpreting the Analects, we can actually reference these different commentaries. We can reference different philosophers that added their own sort of footnotes. So it's been through this process of adding footnotes and putting out commentaries on the traditional texts like Confucius Analects that, over time, a gigantic lexicon of commentaries has been collected that spans the past 2,000 years or so. Every influential Chinese philosopher after Confucius commented on the Analects, so we have a massive body of work to go on here. And if this sounds odd, it's actually not too far off from how philosophy is done in the West. Philosopher Alfred North Whitehead in his book Process and Reality described the entire Western philosophical tradition as being a, and I quote, series of footnotes to Plato. So that is a bit of an exaggeration, but it is true that the ancient Greeks like Plato and also Aristotle are among the most influential philosophers in what we call Western philosophy today. And to this day, a lot of university students taking philosophy courses will mainly focus on these two thinkers and their ancient writings. And most of these students will end up writing essays on the ideas of Plato or on the ideas of Aristotle. I mean, I would guess that there are more PhDs in philosophy specializing in Plato or Aristotle than any other philosophers ever. So while we might think it's odd that nearly the entirety of Chinese philosophy is a series of later philosophers commenting on the ancient ideas of Confucius for thousands of years, it's actually not that strange at all. Because in the West, we still do the exact same thing with Plato and Aristotle. Every year, new academically published philosophy papers come out talking about Plato and Aristotle, philosophers that lived 2,300 to 2,400 years ago. The biggest differentiator here is that Europe had its renaissance, its remembering of these lost ancient texts like Plato and Aristotle. And in this remembering, there was also innovation. China never had that. China never forgot Confucius. Confucian values have remained at the center of Chinese social and political thought for thousands of years. Also, while in the West we might say that we started innovating in philosophy around five to six hundred years ago with thinkers like Descartes who brought in fresh new ideas, you can also argue that Descartes himself was still just responding to Plato and Aristotle. If we really look at the philosophical tradition in the West, a huge amount of modern philosophy is actually derived from Plato and Aristotle in some way. Philosophy in the West starts with them. So these are the parallels to me. In the East, philosophy starts with Confucius. And what we call Eastern philosophy isn't that fundamentally different from Western philosophy once we start to dig a bit deeper. 
And I'm not going to orientalize or mysticize here. In many ways, the philosophy of Plato was way more mystical and out there than the philosophy of Confucius ever was. Plato was an idealist. He was concerned with abstract ideas. And ultimately, his ideas were co-opted by the Christian theology movement, and the ideas of Plato became central to Christianity. It's the basis for their divinity in a lot of ways. On the other hand, Aristotle made huge advances in logic. He was very concerned with science and physics and also metaphysics. Meanwhile, in China, Confucius was solely focused on how to organize a good society, how to cultivate virtuous people, how to bring about good and benevolent rulers, and how to promote this sense of social harmony that seems so important to Chinese culture. Now, it does seem like the core motivation or the core principle in Confucius' philosophical system is this drive towards understanding how human behavior ultimately promotes social harmony. This is the goal of a virtuous person, or at least a virtuous ruler. If an emperor practices Ren and Li and is themselves an exemplar of virtue, then it's said, according to Confucianism, that harmony will be maintained throughout the empire, throughout the kingdom, and the people will flourish. And by harmony here, we do not mean harmony in the way we might use it now. In the modern world, we might use this idea of harmony as a synonym of obedience, or falling in line, or uniformity in society. And this is certainly what we kind of envision when we picture the political machine of modern China. It is a place of uniformity. But in Confucian times, what harmony really means is a sort of social order based on following traditions and fulfilling one's proper duties towards others. And in this way, the ideas of Confucianism in some ways might resemble modern-day ideals behind socially conservative political ideologies. Conservatives generally strive towards this feeling of harmony in society through free enterprise and personal liberty and this emphasis on following traditional values. And harmony is still highly relevant to the modern China that we see today. It's just that they pursue this harmony differently. In his book, How the World Thinks, philosopher Julian Beghini gives some context on this concept of harmony. He says, and I quote, There is arguably no more important concept than harmony for understanding how China thinks and lives. I had been reading about harmony before visiting the country and was somewhat suspicious that it might be something of an academic construction with little relevance to daily life. What I found was the exact opposite. The term was ubiquitous in everyday discourse. One woman told me about her five years spent in Edinburgh, in which she greatly enjoyed. When I asked what the biggest difference she noticed between her Scottish colleagues and the people back home was, she said, The Chinese wish always to please other people, while Brits please themselves. The word she used unprompted to describe this value was harmony. Now, let's admit for a moment that this is probably a great oversimplification. Saying that this ideal of harmony is the greatest moral and political ideal in both ancient China and modern China is an extremely simplified way of talking about Chinese thought and Chinese politics. But we could argue that, despite this simplification, it's also fairly accurate. In a different section, Beghini goes on, and I quote, Most Americans and Europeans, for example, assert the value of individual freedom and liberty without any deep knowledge of how these concepts have been justified and explained by their philosophers. 
Millions of Indians live their lives according to principles of karma without an in-depth knowledge of the rich and complex literature articulating what precisely this involves. Ordinary Chinese assert the importance of harmony with little more than a cursory knowledge of the Confucian and Taoist texts that analyze and describe it. What is salient in the world's philosophies also tends to be salient in their host cultures. And in that way, at least understanding philosophy is a window into culture. Now this is something I strongly agree with, this idea that understanding the philosophy of a given culture is a great way to sort of try to get to understand the culture itself. And if we really think about it, I mean, what is culture anyways? That's probably a podcast topic in and of itself, but if we want to continue on our path of simplification here, we could say that culture is a collection of traditions, of texts, and of ideas that pertain to a particular cultural identity. Now, if we want to understand a given culture, then we want to understand these contexts. We want to get to know its texts, we want to get to know its history, and we want to get to know its traditions. Now, what's the one subject that deals with all of these things altogether? The one subject that delves into different texts, into the history of society and politics, and which also spends some time analyzing different traditions? Well, that subject is philosophy philosophy synthesizes all of these topics into one central marketplace of ideas. So I might be biased in saying this, but I think that if you want to get a good understanding of a given culture, the best way to do that is to hit the books, particularly to read the works of philosophy that were produced by that culture. Now, when we're discussing things and talking about how in Western countries we value freedom and liberty above all else, and how in Chinese society, the value harmony above all else, these are generalizations. It doesn't mean that everyone in that society or that culture values the same things. There are certainly different types of people with different beliefs. Some people in Western countries maybe don't value freedom and liberty that much. And on the other hand, some Chinese people might say that freedom and liberty are of the utmost importance. We're making generalizations here, and we can generally say that in the West we place a big emphasis on freedom and liberty. And this means that most often the actions of Western countries embody this expression of freedom and liberty. You could even say that political actions which limit freedom and limit liberty cause problems, leading to social discord. You might even say that it's through maintaining these ideals of freedom and liberty that we're able to maintain order and harmony in democratic Western countries. Without these principles as the fundamental values of our culture, we might be losing a part of our identity. Now this applies in the reverse to China in the context of harmony. If the Chinese authorities aren't upholding harmony, this can lead to social discord and unrest. Politically, China strives for proper, harmonious relations both internally and externally. It's just a matter of how you define proper and how you define harmony. Now, harmony is a difficult term to get at and to define. It doesn't mean obedience and uniformity. At its core, harmony strives for balanced diversity, the coming together of diverse elements to form a harmonious whole. So I want to jump in now to some of the actual things that Confucius says and try to layer some context on them. And for the text of the Analects that I'm using, I'm relying heavily on a complete translation of the Analects with annotations from Edward Slingerland, who's a scholar and philosopher specializing in Confucianism. 
The edition I'm using also includes some traditional commentaries. So here Slingerland has included some commentaries from other Chinese philosophers that add some additional color or context to whatever Confucius is saying. And this is an absolute game changer when it comes to interpreting the meanings behind what Confucius is saying. So in the Analects, in one passage, Confucius himself states, and I quote, the exemplary person pursues harmony rather than sameness. The small person does the opposite. Here, Slingerland refers to a Chinese expression, the concept of a pool of dead water, which refers to a lifeless state of uniformity. The image here is clear. Too much uniformity means stagnancy. Uniformity is boring and lifeless. And this matches what Confucius said. He says that the good person pursues harmony and does not pursue sameness. He says that the small person does the opposite. So the small person would be pursuing uniformity, not harmony. In his book, How the World Thinks, philosopher Julian Beghini quotes an ancient Chinese philosopher named Shi Bo that tries to get at what harmony is. Shi Bo uses this analogy. He says, a single sound is not musical. A single color does not constitute a beautiful pattern. A single flavor does not make a delicious dish. And a single thing does not make harmony. A piece of music needs different musical elements or instruments playing different notes for the whole musical composition to reach a state of harmony. A good soup needs many different ingredients with different flavors that all come together in order to create a harmonious meal. Another example, but an odd one, is the idea that we have two hands. We have a right hand and we have a left hand. And we use both hands in different ways. They each do different things. But together, they're better than each hand on its own. It's these two separate entities, these two separate hands, that form a working system somewhere in the middle. Now, the question is, would, would anyone trade their left or right hands for a middle hand? It's an obscure image, but that's what uniformity does. It replaces difference with sameness, replaces the left and right hand with a single merged middle hand. And that's the opposite of the type of harmony that exists in Chinese thought, fundamentally. Bagini also quotes Yao Xinzong when saying that harmony almost requires a sort of tension in order to be truly harmonious. Harmony cannot be achieved unless all sides are willing to give up something. If everyone holds out for everything they want, then conflict will result. Harmony requires compromise and patience. The best example of how this system of harmony works in practice can be seen in the importance Confucianism places on harmonious family relations. Everyone in this traditional family unit has their place and purpose. Julian Beghini says, and I quote, Whether it is because of or despite the fact that harmonious families are hard to maintain, one of the best-known manifestations of harmony in Confucian ethics is the virtue of filial piety. Family ties are at the heart of virtue and ethics. And we can also illustrate this with an ancient story. So, there is a story of a prime minister in the Chinese Song Dynasty about a thousand years ago who lived with nine generations of his family all in the same household. Now, the emperor of the Song Dynasty asked his prime minister how such a large household could be harmonious, wanting to know his secret. According to the story, the prime minister took a pen and paper or a scroll or something, and he wrote out the Chinese word jen over a hundred times. And the word jen means patience and also means endurance. 
and this was his response to the emperor, patience times 100. Now, many ancient texts, including Confucian texts, emphasize absolute loyalty of sons to fathers. But this absolute loyalty does not mean absolute obedience. An example is given where if a father does something that is not correct, and the son knows it is not correct, it's actually the son's duty to argue with the father and get him to see what the right action is. The example states that if the son follows the father thinking that the father is wrong without any argument, then this is not proper loyalty. This creates a lopsided relationship where the father retains absolute authority. And this is not what the Confucians mean by harmony. Loyalty, though, must be unquestioned and absolute. The son, in arguing with his father, must obey his father if he ultimately doesn't change his mind and continues on the course of action that the son doesn't agree with. The son must follow. And similarly, it's the father's role to consider the advice of the son, even though he isn't obligated to actually listen if he doesn't think his son is correct. This entire system creates tension, and in this tension we find harmony. It's a mixture of loyalty and respectful discourse. It's not a one-sided arrangement, it's an entire system coming together that creates the harmony that we're looking for. Another example of how important this was was that it was illegal for most of China's history for a son to report a crime committed by his father. So not only could a father bring ruin to his family by committing a crime, it was also illegal for his family to snitch on him. According to philosopher Kenan Malik in his book The Quest for a Moral Compass, he says, and I quote, There were for Confucius five relationships critical to the maintenance of social harmony and order. Those between father and son, husband and wife, older brother and younger brother, older friend and younger friend, and ruler and subject. Out of these relationships, society was built and in them were incubated the duties and obligations upon which harmony was founded. This emphasis on familial and social relations was temporarily dismantled by the rise of communism in China under Mao Zedong. And it's actually really shocking to see how quickly a new ideology can disrupt the old order. During Mao's cultural revolution, children were told in school to report their parents to the authorities if they said anything against the ruling communist party. Here, the duty of the subject to the ruler became hyper-emphasized. Snitching on your parents rather than being illegal was being encouraged. So this in itself was a rapid and incredible departure from the ancient Chinese ideals that said children should be absolutely subordinate to their parents and that social harmony depends on these five key relationships. And with this move, with these reforms, Mao's aim was to destroy these old cultural ideas around family ties being central to life in China. As Julian Baghini says about this time, and I quote, When Mao launched the Cultural Revolution in 1966, he waged a head-on assault on traditional Confucian values, aiming to wipe out what he called the four olds, old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas. Prime among these was loyalty to family. From a traditional point of view, nothing could have been more un-Chinese than the Maoist encouragement of children to denounce their own parents, their very antithesis of Confucian values. Although no one claimed to be able to fully understand this, the general view among philosophers I spoke to seems to be that rare, 
Violent changes are the price China pays for its more typical stability. Now, despite things going off the rails a bit during the time of Mao Zedong, things did rebound after Mao was gone. The return to Confucianism in modern China today is also still on the rise. And this, overall, it's interesting to think about because it sort of shows how this ideal of harmony works on a very large and very long-term scale. Chinese notions of harmony value diversity and newness in some ways. China is amazing at absorbing elements from other cultures and sort of transforming them into a Chinese version. I mean, we even see that today with the rise of capitalism in China. It isn't the democratic type of capitalism that we practice in the West. It's a co-opted Chinese version of capitalism. And here, maybe we could even say that everything that happens in China happens through the lens of ancient Chinese philosophies like Confucianism. A very visceral example of this phenomena of absorption into Chinese society and culture comes from the Mongol conquest of China, where in the 13th century, Kublai Khan defeated the ruling Song dynasty and became de facto emperor of China. But what ultimately happened when this Mongol ruler, Kublai Khan, became the ruler of China is very interesting. So Kublai Khan, when he became the new emperor of China, he declared that this new kingdom, this new dynasty, was to be named the Yuan dynasty. While the ruling class started off being Mongols themselves, the population here was almost entirely Chinese. And over time, Chinese language, customs, and culture infiltrated the Mongol rulers. Kublai Khan was emperor of China from 1271 until 1294 when he died, so about 23 years. And we know these exact dates because the Chinese were incredible at keeping detailed records, so we actually know these dates for certain. By 1311, so not even 20 years after Kublai's death, his great-grandson Buyantu Khan became emperor of China. And Buyantu really changed things up. He actively supported the adoption of mainstream Chinese culture. He was even mentored by a Confucian scholar, so his education was based on the education system of China. He was educated in Confucian ideals. So for all intents and purposes, Buyantu had closer ties to Chinese culture than he did to Mongol culture. Buyantu ultimately reintroduced China's imperial examination system, where in order for someone in China to become an official and to work in government, Chinese officials needed to pass a difficult examination that tested their knowledge of Confucian principles and ideas. To me, this whole sequence of events of the Mongol conquest of China and the establishment of this new dynasty, this perfectly illustrates the power of China's focus on harmony and their ability to absorb external influences. It took decades for the Mongols to conquer China. They started their first attacks and raids around the year 1205. About five years later, in like 1210 or so, the Western Xia Kingdom in northwest China was defeated and turned into a vassal state of the Mongol Empire and then they were later completely destroyed when they betrayed the Mongols. The Mongols had a habit here of taking no prisoners for anyone who wronged them. After that, they turned their eye towards the more stronger Chinese dynasties of the time, so at the time China was split into many different kingdoms. And there were two particularly strong kingdoms, first the, the Jin dynasty in the north around Beijing, and then the much stronger Song dynasty in the south and east of China. 
So after a 20-plus year campaign against the Jin dynasty around modern-day Beijing, the Mongols took that dynasty over. They took over that kingdom. And then after about 40 years of on and off fighting with the much stronger Song dynasty in southern China, that dynasty fell too. And from the ashes of all of this emerged this unified new dynasty ruled by the Mongols, ruled by Kublai Khan as emperor, this Yuan dynasty. Now what's funny and interesting here is that once the Yuan dynasty emerged from the ashes within about 40 years, the new emperor of China, this Buyatu Khan, was now more influenced by Chinese culture than Mongol culture. Effectively, Mongol involvement in China declined and eventually ceased, and the Yuan dynasty became just another Chinese dynasty. Even in the Chinese history books, they don't refer to the Yuan dynasty as a foreign occupation, they refer to it as just a normal Chinese dynasty. They refer to the emperors of the Yuan dynasty as Chinese emperors. Because after a long and bloody conquest of China, it only took a few decades until, effectively, China was ruled by China again. Now, this is a very long and complicated story, and I am, of course, risking an oversimplification here, as with everything else, but the basics are that China was conquered by a foreign invader, and that foreign invader essentially became absorbed into Chinese society and Chinese culture, to such an extent that after only a few decades of rule, the rulers weren't even seen as foreign invaders anymore. Now, there is sort of some two-way action here. When the Mongols were fighting against these more powerful Chinese kingdoms, the Chinese had heavily fortified cities that they could hole up in for years. And the Mongols had zero knowledge of siege warfare or to actually lay siege to a city. But it was also the Chinese themselves who were known to be the most sophisticated siege engineers of their time. The Mongols here were known for their brutality, but they were also known for their system of meritocracy. If you were conquered by the Mongols and you weren't useful to them, then they would just kill you on the spot. But if you were useful, if you had some sort of useful skill, they would recruit you. You would join their ranks and they would put you to work. And if you did well, they would even promote you. So the Mongols ultimately conquered China by recruiting siege engineers from China. And these Chinese siege engineers built the weapons that the Mongols needed to lay siege to these heavily fortified Chinese cities. The Chinese obliged this because they didn't really have any choice. It was either do this or die. But I wonder if there was also a social harmony aspect to this. The idea that for these Chinese recruits that since they've been conquered and there's a new ruler in town, well, it's now their duty to serve this new ruler to make themselves useful. Not just for themselves, but for the new society as a whole. This is similar to what happened when the Mongols took over and established the Yuan dynasty. The Mongols didn't know how to administer a complex, interconnected empire like China, so they brought in Chinese officials who could act as administrators and advisors. And over time, this meant that the Mongol leaders were heavily influenced by Confucian values. And over time, there came an absorption of the Mongol leadership into Chinese society and culture. This facilitated a return to harmony. Now just imagine what this might have looked like in some other culture. If some foreign invader took over a Western democratic country with its principles of freedom and liberty, the most common outcome here is going to be an ongoing resistance. We even celebrate this resistance in the West in our movies and our stories. 
when some country gets conquered and someone gets co-opted into serving this invader, if they play nice, they're viewed as the bad guys in these stories. And if instead we resist this occupier and fight against them in any covert way, we're seen as heroes. For example, look at the French resistance to Nazi occupation of France. Or the Irish liberation movement wanting to take Northern Ireland back from the British. Or ongoing Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation. There are also resistance movements in Tibet against the Chinese and in Kashmir against India. But what this type of fighting against your invader does is it creates disharmony. It leads to continued chaos and disorder, and that leads to continued suffering of the people. The new rulers can't establish a functioning society if they're being foiled by resistance movements at every step. This might inevitably lead to a sort of dramatic collapse or a violent quelling of dissent. But when the Mongols took over China, it seems that trade flourished and peace reigned. The peak of the Silk Road happened during the Yuan dynasty that the Mongols ruled. Now, the war for the conquest of China was itself extremely brutal, but the resulting dynasty seems to have ushered in a new era of peace and prosperity throughout China. I'm speculating here, but maybe this is due to that harmonious relationship between the Mongols and the Chinese, the left and the right hand sort of working together. The Mongols wanted wealth and power, the Chinese wanted a harmonious society, which in fact they hadn't had for quite a while because at the time of the Mongol conquest of China, China had been divided into many separate kingdoms after a period of decline and they were all fighting amongst each other. So this new unified Yuan dynasty represented a sort of a restart or reinvigoration of China. Now the Yuan dynasty didn't last forever, it did eventually collapse within a century of being established. A series of massive flooding over the Yellow River and cold weather caused a decline in agriculture. And then a series of bad epidemics killed millions of people in China. The Yuan dynasty eventually fell to an uprising and it was replaced by the new Ming dynasty, which again promoted traditional Confucian values and went on to rule for some 300 years or so. Now this has been an extremely brief and simplified version of what went down during the Mongol conquest of China and the aftermath of that conquest. But my purpose here is to sort of get to this idea of the enduring values of Chinese culture and society. Ideas like virtue and ren and li and harmony and filial piety that's been around for thousands of years at this point, though with some momentary hiccups like during Mao's Cultural Revolution. It reminds me of the story of that Song Dynasty prime minister writing the word for patience and endurance a hundred times on a piece of paper to illustrate to the emperor how one maintains harmony among a large, multi-generational family. Here, the principle of harmony almost acts like a sponge. You can squeeze that sponge into a ball and it will yield, but as soon as you set it down again, it bounces back into its normal sponge form. And it's also absorbent, able to absorb a certain amount of water up to a certain point until it needs to eventually be squeezed and wrung dry again. For some reason or another, Confucianism has endured in China, despite numerous collapses, foreign invasions, and bouts of book-burning and shirking of ancient traditions. Those ancient traditions have remained. And I hope this illustrates how prominent this ideal of harmony is. And even today, the political entity that is China retains this emphasis on maintaining harmony. But even this ideal of harmony can run amok. So I think I'm going to kind of wrap things up a little bit here for now, and on next week's episode we'll continue with a part two about Confucianism and modern-day China, 
and how that plays into the modern Communist Party of China. But before we end, I just want to kind of end on a question that I'm also going to attempt to answer. And the question is this, do we really need to know all of this philosophy to understand a culture? And for this, I'm going to lean on Julian Baghini from his book, How the World Thinks. He says, and I quote, Indian philosophers still study the Vedas. Chinese philosophers, the works of Confucius and Mencius. Western philosophers, the works of Plato and Aristotle. Joel Kupperman observes that there are countries, India and China especially, in which a small number of philosophical texts are foundational, not merely to later philosophy, but also to the entire culture. And this, for me, is the crux of the whole thing. As Beginney goes on, he says, and I quote, If we truly aspire to a more objective understanding of the world, we have to make use of the advantages to be gained by occupying different intellectual places. So this is the whole purpose of me wanting to do this podcast about Confucianism and modern China and how the two relate to one another. China is going to play an increasingly crucial role over the next few decades, and most of us here in the West have very little understanding of China and what their beliefs and ideologies really are, apart from their proclaimed communist party that maintains a strict iron hand over the country. I think a big key to understanding China is understanding the philosophy behind China, because this ancient philosophy is still extremely relevant to the modern day. So I hope I've done a decent job here of introducing the history of Confucianism in China. On the next episode, we're going to go a lot more in-depth into the actual Confucian values and what they are, and how they might be expressed in the modern age, or not be expressed in some cases. And the question I'm going to attempt to answer in the next episode, too, is sort of looking at how China's philosophy can maybe produce a bit of a roadmap for China to follow over the coming few decades of the 21st century. It's not clear that modern China is on a very good or healthy trajectory right now, and we're still seeing a lot of unknowns with how things are going to play out in the long term. I'm hoping that by shedding some light on the traditional values that dominate China to this day, we can hope to get a glimpse of where China is heading and what the goals of the Chinese Communist Party might be over the coming century. And with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. I do have a brief announcement to make. It's just that the weekly companion podcast that I've been putting out over the past several weeks, I've decided to stop doing it weekly because I'm not super happy with the quality that I've been putting out every week. And what I'm going to aim to do instead is do a a monthly bonus podcast for paying members or patrons only that's going to be longer and of better quality and hopefully on topics that people are really interested in listening to. So I'm planning on putting out the first of this new monthly companion podcast format in the middle of March. So for anyone who's interested in that, I'd be delighted if you would sign up via either Patreon or through our website. And with that, thanks everyone, and I'll see you all in the next one.